you. Hi, everyone. <sighs> Hi, folks. Well, it's, it's a real pleasure for, to, for me to be up on stage because um, every time we do a series over the past, uh, well, six months, we've always gone into lockdown. And so I'm, I'm gearing myself up to speak to you, and I can't do it. So it's a real pleasure to be here today, to be looking at you face-to-face -face and kind of gauging the atmosphere of, um, of the room. So it's great to be here. As, we, as um, Chloe said, we've been looking at simplicity. We've, we've been doing five weeks. This is our sixth week. And I, my hope would be that the end of this six weeks, the end of this series, that when we think about simplicity, that we wouldn't think about a, a sparse room or we wouldn't think about a really nice, tidy sock drawer, a la Marie Kondo, right? As great as those things are. My hope would be that at the end of this series, we would think about simplicity, something like a Rubrics cube, okay? So when you think about simplicity, think about a Rubrics cube. Because the thing is, uh, complexity is not the enemy of simplicity. Complexity is not the enemy of simplicity. So when you think about a Rubik's Coupe, it looks very complex, right? But when you turn it in the right way, it turns out to be a very simple object with nice colors. And I think that's what simplicity is actually about. So simplicity is actually about knowing how to put complexity into order. That's what simplicity is to put things in the right balance and to bring them into a coherent whole. That's simplicity. And of course, when things do get out of whack, right, the thing, this is when we do find ourselves in tension and anxiety about complexity, it's because it's got out of order. So simplicity is about putting things back in order. And this week, I wanna talk about simplicity and, um, and what am I talking about? Is it up on the screen? No, it's not. Uh, um, being content, simplicity and being content. So the reason that these things go together, you're thinking, how does simplicity go with being content with our lives? Well, I opened up the dictionary to get a kind of definition for this. And when you look into a, a normal English dictionary, what comes up is that contentment is about being happy and about being satisfied. It's about being happy and it's about being satisfied. And I think that's way too simplistic. That's too simplistic, right? What I want us to consider today is what the Apostle Paul thought about uh, being content in the first century. So this kind of ca this came out, I looked up this dictionary, it came out in 2007, and they'd come up with this. Paul had come up with an alternative definition of being content in the first century. And I want us to consider this today, because I think it's complex on one hand and simple on the other hand. And this is what Paul says. I want us to think about contentment as the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. Simplicity is the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. It's strange, right? It's strange to our ear because we've come to understand the dictionary definition of contentment. And peace here, whenever we feel the peace of God, that's always the presence of God. You cannot have peace, the peace of God, without the presence of God. So those two things always go together. So what Paul is saying is that the peace, the presence of God is contentment that surpasses all understanding. So here's why, according to Paul, contentment and simplicity go together. Contentment is the simple sense of peace 
that we experience in the presence of God. Complex. It's actually very complex and incredibly simple, right? Let's just get close to God. Let's let God come into our lives and we'll have contentment. And I think the good way to think about this is that actually all of us crave peace and contentment in our lives. There's something about the human person, about us as human beings, that we crave and want and desire contentment in our lives. We all want it. We're all trying to find it. We're all going after it. That's the truth. And I like to think about it as like, here's a metaphor for life. It's like, who here gets, hang- who here gets hangry? Everyone gets hangry, right? Yeah, we get hangry. And life is like that. We're craving for satisfaction. We're craving for that meal, right? That next little bit of meal, and then we'll be satisfied. And then suddenly that kind of dissipates, and we need to eat again. We need to go after that contentment again, that satisfaction again, that peace again. And if we don't, we get re- we're not nice people to be around. We get hangry. So that's the human condition. All of us crave for peace, satisfaction, and contentment. That's what we do. And actually, I've told you nothing new yet. We all know this. I think intuitively we know this. And in fact, do you know who else knows this? Big industry. Big industry knows that we crave contentment. And in fact, each year, people spend billions of dollars on trying to find contentment in their life. Marketers have come up with a new category to talk about this. They call it spiritual spending. Spiritual spending. And it doesn't matter where you really think about that or where you sit on that continuum. I think it's genius. Because marketers have figured out that even though they sell us stuff and we buy that stuff, that the real root of that desire is far deeper than the things that we acquire. They've got it right. It's a deep spiritual problem, and they call it spiritual spending. It's genius. I, I think it's really onto it. And what they do, the thing they do here, is that they advertise to us in such a way as to appeal to our desire for contentment. And these companies who run some of the most uh, sophisticated algorithms that we know of, they know what you're looking at. They know what you like. They know what your friends like. Their whole thing in life, their whole the way of their operating is to make you discontent with your life. That's what, they're, that's what they're built to do. Their sole purpose is to make you feel dissatisfied with your life, with your relationships, with your status, with your image, and with your possessions. Now, here's a tip, okay? If you want to set up one of these companies, I'm going to tell you how to do it, right? You ready for this? If you're thinking about this, what you've got to do to get people to desire contentment is to make them look at other people. Because as soon as you start looking at people around you, you're thinking, man, my larder is not as cool as my mate's Hillman Hunter, right? And the company told him to buy the Hillman Hunter. And you were content with your larder, but now you think, Maybe I should get a Hillman Hunter, right? My mum had a Hillman Hunter. That's why I'm thinking of those. That's exactly what companies do. They make you look at another person. They make you look at the people around you so you become dissatisfied with what you have, and they say, that person's got it better. 
you should be like them. That's what they do. And then, okay, if you've got that, then what you do is you sweep in and you say, we've got the thing that you can buy to find contentment. Is everyone, is everyone like this? Are people like this? Do you kind of get where I'm at? And what tends to happen, though, is that although we buy this stuff, we're looking for contentment, what tends to happen is that we end up with a life full of clutter. We end up with a life full of clutter. Because instead of finding that peace that we're promised from buying more stuff or following that group, what happens is that we end up with a life full of half-finished projects. We end up with a closet full of last year's fashion or a big ticket item that we couldn't afford in the first place. We end up with a life full of clutter because the things that we're trying to acquire never satisfy. Spiritual spending. And um, let me just say here that not all discontentment is bad for us. In fact, God, there is God-given discontentment. Sometimes God makes us discontent to move us into new ways of knowing him. So not all discontentment is bad. Sometimes God makes us discontent to prompt us into the calling that he has on our lives. You know, sometimes we're in a job and we just feel like, this is not really meeting all the gifts that I think I have. That could be God prompting us into a new calling on our lives. So not all discontentment is bad. And of course, we must always, always be dissatisfied with injustice, poverty, and the marginalization of people in our society. That is a God-given discontentment. If we're not dissatisfied with those, get discontent. Ask God for the gift of holy discontentment, okay? What I'm talking about, though, I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about here is that endless inner discontentment, that never-ending pursuit to be satisfied and at peace with ourselves and with our lives. We're unsatisfied and we're always hungry. You know, here's a statistic for you. Despite that kind of the effort and people spend on money and the endeavor to find contentment, people in the West constantly rank on scales of being some of the most unhappy people in the world. Why is that? Why are we so discontent? You know, on the surface, we're reasonably healthy, right? We're pretty healthy. We're definitely wealthy. We're some of the wealthiest people in the world, right? Why are we discontent? Why do we constantly rank as being discontent? Why is that? Well, St. Augustine, who this church is named after, has a theory on this. And he came up with it in the fourth century. He looked around at the people in his culture, and he realized that despite all the things that they had, despite getting the, you know, achieving the goals that they, they wanted to achieve, and getting all the little pieces of uh, stuff that they needed to feel content in their life, something was still moving them to seek even greater contentment. Despite them having everything, they still felt discontent. And Augustine thought this. Well, he thought, well, I think there is a piece to the contentment puzzle that is designed 
only for the presence of God. There's a peace in the human psyche deep inside of us that is designed, despite having everything, there's one piece of the puzzle that is designed to have the presence of God. And you know what? Any puzzle makers in the room, the last piece of the puzzle is always the most important piece of the puzzle because without it, you can never finish the puzzle. That's pretty deep, eh? Oh, yeah. Quote that one, Chloe. Augustine put it like this. Always the poet, he put it like this. Not like that, he put it like this. He said, you've created us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. It's so poetic, it's so beautiful, I think it's so profound, it's so true, that there's something inside of us, despite our spiritual spending, that can never be filled by the things that we acquire, the goals that we want, the image that we project. There's something else, there's something that we cannot fill on our own. You can have everything in life, but if you do not have this last piece, then you will never have peace. Let me say that again. You can have everything in life, but if you don't have this last peace, then you will never have peace. How do we fill that last piece in the puzzle? How do we fill it? I don't think it's insignificant that the greatest piece of advice in the Bible on contentment comes from the Apostle Paul, who is writing from a prison cell. The greatest piece of advice on contentment in the Bible comes from a person who is living in a prison cell. I don't think that's insignificant. In the letter to the Philippians, Paul is writing to a church in Philippi, which he founded, a small Roman colony, which is now in the northern part of Greece. So Rome is up here, and Philippi is kind of over here. He's writing to thank them. He's writing to thank them for a little care package that they managed to put together for him. Thank you for that, because there's no toothbrushes or soap in a Roman prison. So he's writing to thank, to thank them, and he writes this. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Ellipsis. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Pretty cool. And the last person you would expect to be writing on contentment, right? I mean, clearly, it's not a place that you would feel content. He doesn't have any of the kind of mod cons that we would probably kind of uh, think that contentment comes with. He's writing in a prison cell. It would have been dirty. It would have been smelly. It would have been airless. It would have been uh, lightless. It would have been a little hole in the ground. They didn't care for prisoners back then. Whatever you arrived in is what you had. Yet he's saying that he's content and at peace. What's Paul's secret? I've learned the secret. I think that's really interesting. That's really interesting language. I've learned a secret. In the Greek, the secret only gets used here in, in the Bible. 
and in fact, it gets used in the, wider, um, in the wider culture for when you come, you learn a secret, you become initiated into a new, uh, a new kind of um, group. You learn their secret. You learn how they do things. Paul has learned the secret of what it means to be a Christian. I know the secret. What is Paul's secret? And the clue to Paul's secret comes in the paragraph just before this. And he says this. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I think the secret hinges on four words. The Lord is those four words, everything pivots on them. Everything after those four words changes how Paul starts to talk to the Philippians in this letter. Those four words change everything. I've learned the secret. The Lord is near. Everything that Paul says flows from those four words. Don't you think it's a little simplistic? It's, it's a little simplistic, right? Why do you think Paul would need to remind us that the Lord is near? I mean, it's not theologically complex, huh? The Lord is near? I think he does it because for this. Are we close to God? Are we close to God? What if we've got contentment around the wrong way? And this is my thesis, this is my thesis for you today. What if we've got contentment around the wrong way? What if contentment is not our search to find peace and be satisfied and be content? What if it's not a search? What if, it, what if contentment's not something we can acquire? What if it's something that we can't buy? What if contentment is not something that we search for and find? What if contentment finds us? What if it comes to us? Last weekend, I, um, I went to a secondhand bookstore. I like going to a secondhand bookstore. And when I'm in a secondhand bookstore, I like to go to the, the Christian section. And the Christian section in the secondhand bookstore was always really small, right? It's tiny. It's really small. But it's always really easy to find because they always put it right next to the self-help books, which is always really large. So if you want to find the Christian section in the second-hand bookstore, go to the self-help section, okay, because it's right there. And I guess it makes sense because they're doing the same thing, right? The Christian section, the self-help, the self-help section, they're doing the same thing. They're talking about the same thing, right? Self-help books, by the title, they help us on our quest to find satisfaction and contentment and peace. That's what the Bible's doing, right? The Bible's helping us to find peace and contentment. No, that's actually not the case. The Bible is not about us helping us to find contentment. The story that the Bible tells is about God finding us. God is in search for us. God is looking for us. That's the story that the Bible awakens us to. God is in search for us. Why is God searching for us? 
because we tend to operate out of an assumption that we need to find our peace and contentment. I will do this. I will find my peace. I will find out how to be satisfied. I will find a way to lower my anxiety. I will find a way to put my life in control. I will find a way to do that. How's that going for us? Well, the world rankings on happiness would say that it's not going too well. The more we search for satisfaction, the more our lives clutter up. What if contentment comes searching for us? You know, one of the greatest images in the Bible about God searching for us comes in the book of Revelation. And in Revelation, Jesus is described as knocking on the door to our lives. In the book of Revelation, Jesus is described as knocking on the door to our lives. What if the reality is that Jesus is looking for us? I stand at the door and knock. Whoever hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with you. What happens when you eat with someone? Often you're at peace. God's talking about bringing his presence into our lives. I stand at the door and knock. And no matter how much we've gone off searching for that contentment, Jesus is always knocking on the door, ready to come into our lives. The question is, will you open the door and let him in? Will you open the door and let him in to your life? This goes straight to the heart of Augustine's saying. We are restless until we find our rest in God. Jesus wants to find you today. Jesus wants to find you today. Will you open the door and let him in? Allow yourselves to be found. How do we let God in? How do we let God into our lives? I want you to think about this. I want you to imagine a door. Imagine a door, and behind that door is all this clutter. Your ego, your image, your wealth, your desire for power, and it's no shame. We all run after all these things, okay? We all do this, but it's cluttering up the door, and God wants to get in, but he can't get in. What do we do? Clear away the clutter. Clear it away. Clear it away. Just take it away. Contentment starts when we clear away the clutter to the door of our lives so we can be found by Jesus who is knocking at the door. Okay, right. How do we do this then? How do we practice contentment? I think there's three things that we can do, and I draw this out of, I draw this out of um, Paul's letter to the Philippians. First of all, the Lord is here, right? What we need to do, I would encourage you to do this. We need to put ourselves in a position where God can find us. We need to make the decision to be found by God. And I would encourage you this week to take five minutes, just five minutes, and say, God, I believe that you're looking for me. I believe that you want to come into my life. Here I am. 
into my heart. It's pretty simple, right? It's deeply complex and incredibly simple. Lord, I know you're looking for me. Come into my life. Open the door. Now, when you're in that position, then I would say, think about the things that have become uh, disproportionate in your life. What are those things in your life that you've become attached to, that you have become attached to so much that they're the things in your life that you, uh, that you are looking for contentment for? And then to, once those, and ask God to bring those to your, bring those to your mind and then hand them over in those five minutes and say, just see what it's like, just to see what it's like. Say, God, this has become a huge thing for me. It's what I'm putting, I'm putting all my stake on this goal. This is, you know, if I get this career, then I will be content, I'll be at peace. At that point, it's become disproportionate in your life and you need to start to hand it back to, to God. That then moves on to the last thing that I think Paul is wanting to say to us. In that point, you know, God has given us so much. Start to thank God for the things that he has given you. Let him thank him for those things. You know, when we are thankful to God, our heart is open. We are able to see the presence of God in our lives. And when, when we're thankful, ask God that he would make those things in your life opportunities towards life and that we don't always see those things as hindrances. Jesus is knocking on the door to your, to your life today. Allow yourself to be found. Okay, so hey, we're just about to move into communion. And communion reminds us just how close God really is to us. And I would say to you today, when you come to communion, make it an act of prayer. Make it an act of prayer. That when you take the bread and the wine, that you're saying, Jesus, I'm opening my life to you again today. The bread and the wine, they show us just how close Jesus really is to us. And it's an invitation to allow Jesus into your life. Here's the thing. It doesn't matter where you are with Jesus today. Perhaps you're facing Jesus. Perhaps you're hiding from Jesus. Perhaps you don't know Jesus. Come and let Jesus into your life today. We truly find rest when we rest in God. And take the bread and the wine this morning as an act of opening yourself up again, opening up your life again to the presence of God. And what's the worst that could happen? At worst, you're going to find rest for your souls. And at best, you're going to experience true contentment. Amen.